Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I am joined today by Mike Slavin. You can connect with Mike at his website, mikeslavin.com. His newsletter that goes out to 39,000 people each week called Down the Rabbit Hole. He is a contributor at High Existence, and his Instagram is at mikeslavinmagic, all of which are linked in the show notes. Additionally, I donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice with each and every episode. And in this episode, the organization that Mike has selected is called Unlimited Sciences, which is doing really great research and work into the healing power of psychedelics and plant medicine. So please join me in donating. Now, why is this conversation for you? I've always been really fascinated by the way that magicians with simple sleight of hand or little tricks can manipulate our mind into believing something that isn't quote unquote real. And Mike for over half of his life has been a magician. So I love the way that he's able to parse through and dissect the limitations of the mind, but also just has a fundamental understanding of how the mind works. He in my estimation, is this amazing combination of a philosopher magician. He has always thought and looked at the world a little bit differently. And I really admire people who don't adhere to convention for convention's sake. And Mike, from a very young age, has been challenging, why am I being educated this way? Why is this important? And I think that most of us as children are really good at this. And it is usually beaten out of us as adults. And we so we accept things for the way that they are instead of challenging them and asking really good questions. Mike is amazing at doing this. And we spend a lot of time talking about how he is able to find what's true for him instead of what's true for the masses. Another element I really love about Mike and his work is that he is able to fall in love with the mundane. I think all of us are looking for more joy and more wonder in our life. And it's easy to think that we need to swing for the fences and have these grandiose dreams and visions that we're living into, but there's really beauty to be had in every moment. And so we really take a look at that as well. What would it be like to actually walk through nature and be in touch with how beautiful it is that this tree has been there for hundreds of years? And not for that to just be an intellectual concept, but rather something that we feel in our body. And so Mike, through his writing, is really able to get us into a place where we are more curious and have more of that natural wonder and zest for life. I really love the magic that Mike is creating in all elements of his work. And you're going to get so much out of this conversation. We do some deep dives into stoic philosophy as well. He studies so many of the best thinkers of our time, and you're going to get a full download of that in the next two hours or so. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Mike has for us right now. Hey, Mike. Welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on. I feel like I've been connecting a lot more recently with folks like yourself who are in Boulder. And there's just so many interesting people in Boulder. You are certainly one of them. So I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring the many hats that you wear. And I actually start every interview by asking, I, I love to understand what you were like as a child and kind of your conditioning and your come from in this world. And the first question I ask is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Hmm. That's a good question. It was, it was, it was nice. It was nice. You know, my family made it a point to have dinner with each other. I know there are some families out there who everyone would kind of break off and sort of sit in front of the TV. And there were occasions where we would do that, but my dad always made it a point to get everyone around and, and, you know, have dinner at the table. And it was just, it was a small family. It was just me and my brother and my, and my mom and my dad. And we'd have different conversations pretty, pretty loosely, but there wasn't any overtones of, you know, like there was no sort of tension around it. It felt pretty relaxed. And so uh, it was, it was nice. It was enjoyable. It was a good ritual to keep everybody sort of connected where it would be easy to kind of fray and just have everyone doing their own thing. It was good to kind of have that as a centerpiece to come together. And when I have kids someday, I'd hope to do that as well. That's beautiful. And what what would you say you were like as a child? And I would also be curious to hear in what ways you were encouraged to be the way that you were. And, and were there ways that you brushed up against or felt challenged of like, I don't feel safe being this part of myself. Uh, mm. so, but just generally speaking, what how would you describe yourself as a child? Yeah, I, there was definitely parts of me that were very performance oriented. I mean, that not in terms of like, a high output and productivity, but actually being a performer, you know, there are photos and videos of me, you know, singing and dancing and, you know, in front of my, whenever there was a video camera out, I would kind of like, you know, put on a show. And that was a bit of who I, you know, who I was. I liked being in front of the camera. And so there were these ways that I felt kind of disconnected or like unseen by particularly the school system when I was Third, in third grade, I was tested to be in the gifted program. And this is a thing I, I don't think about a whole lot anymore, but it was something that really stuck with me for years after. And I would reflect on thinking that may have been a, a pretty monumental moment in my trajectory. Because in this sort of testing process, up until that point, I was very much encouraged for my intelligence. And, you know, I was good at school. I, I was getting good grades. And that was like a part of my identity that I was building. And having this opportunity to earn the label of gifted was very exciting to me. And I still remember I was having this meeting with the school psychologist or whatever their, you know, her role was. And they told me that I was bright, but not gifted. And that was, it was like, oh, Wow. Okay, so that's not how I expected this to go. But it it didn't discourage me. Interestingly enough, it it caused me to break away from my sort of desire to align with the school system and be, you know, like checking the boxes and and being, you know, perfectly, you know, a good student. It's not that I didn't perform moving forward. It's just that I was less interested in what they had to say. I lost confidence in the authority of the institution, which in retrospect is pretty good, you know, self-esteem for, you know, a third grader. 
So that caused me to, it was really kind of oddly beneficial, you know, and this kind of shows that things that are, that can feel negative at the time end up being these real blessings mm-hmm. uh, because it encouraged me to explore the things that I was interested in outside of the education system, outside of my classroom. And I have this distinct memory of having this project in sixth grade where I was, we were learning about World War II and I made a little documentary about World War II. And at this time to piece some video footage together, it was still like, it's not crazy today. You know, like a kid doing that today would be pretty, oh, okay. You know, it's not, not very surprising, but back then it was pretty impressive. You know, it was using Windows Movie Maker and using LimeWire to download old footage, you know, that I, that I could find from World War II and even recorded a voiceover and pieced that all together to the point that my teacher thought that I had, that my parents had helped me do it. You know, that maybe my dad was a video editor or something and didn't believe me that I had made it. And so it's just another point of like, you guys, you're not really seeing me here. You're just, you know, you think that this is somebody, you know, you don't understand what I'm capable of is sort of what it felt like. And that's okay. You know, I, I learned to not need that, you know, affirmation from the school system and instead find it in my own ways by nurturing, encouraging my own interests. So, so yeah, that's sort of a little sort of strand of the story of my upbringing. Yeah, that I appreciate it. And there's, I think there's a couple of threads that I want to pull on because I share, I want to be careful with my wording a little bit, but I have a level of distaste for the education system in, in as much as I think that it, it equips a very specific subset of people with skills to mostly be compliant and to have answers to things that would make them really compliant workers in the world, but really stunts creativity and innovation. And I wasn't like you in third grade. I didn't have the wherewithal to, I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to belong really. And it seemed like the way to belong was to get really good grades. And I I really followed that model up until pretty recently in my life. So I'm curious about a few things, but I guess one of them would be, where do you think that self-esteem came from in third grade for it to be, you know, you're bright, but you're not gifted. Didn't seem like some sort of character assault that you, you, you were able to stand in. Okay. Well, I have other gifts that I'm going to pursue. I'm not going to, I don't need to be a part of this very specific system here. Yeah, I, I, that's an interesting question. It may have been seeing my dad's reaction to it. You know, there's a world where he could have been upset with me for not performing to the degree that I needed to, to get the sort of the accolade or the approval, but that wasn't his reaction at all. He thought it was bullshit and he, he, he didn't agree. And he had this kind of indignant response to it, you know, to say it's politics you know, it's because your mother and I aren't giving enough money to the the school board or the institution that that's why you weren't picked. But these other kids who, you know, are clearly not as sharp as you are, are getting that kind of stamp. And so there, those kinds of musings that he had around it. And to him, it wasn't like I, I didn't disappoint or anything. It was it was like, you know, so in, in reflecting, I've actually not considered this before, like where that came from. But I think that was that had to be part of it. If he had had this reaction where he was disappointed mm-hmm. that I didn't get it, I think that would have been harder for me to 
stand in my own shoes on it. But I felt like I, I still had my parents backing and their recognition. They they saw my talents and my gifts. And to them, I was gifted. And so that so I didn't feel discouraged by that because these people who were testing me, they didn't really know me, but my parents did. Mm. It, it goes to show just how important the, I guess, parenting and having authority figures in your life who are seeing you for who you are can really be. And yeah, what a, what a really special gift that is that you, that you had parents that saw you and, and didn't double down and, and say, you know, you gotta, you gotta kind of bootstrap it and try a little bit harder and get your grades up. But yeah. I, I'd also, I, I love the way that you, in doing some research on you, the way that you write about different subject matters. And I, I would love to hear your thoughts on just explaining the way that you see the education system as it is in, in ways that it's confining or limiting. And we can go from there. Yeah. Well, wow, this is this is a whole can of worms. There is a lot of real strange things about it that I'm just I'm just like, why do we have it set up this way? And I agree with some of your sentiment earlier that it kind of trains into us a disposition towards compliance. And, you know, you have a track and a hierarchy to ascend uh, that's very clear. And the the metrics and the measures are all very clear and set out for you. And so, you know, if you're doing good or if you're doing bad, but in the real world, it's not that way. You have to really set out on your own and figure out your own tracks. And a lot of people will, you know, realize that they'll get into, they'll graduate from high school or graduate from college and then be confronting the abyss of the real world and the the absence of the sort of meaning structure that they have been sort of climbing the entire their entire life and realize oh my god i i need i need to latch on to something else so they'll they maybe they join a big company where they have some sort of promotional track and that can be the next thing that they climb or they go back and get their master's degree because they can't handle the 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 pain of being you know without that sort of education track that doesn't mean that anyone who joins a big company or or goes and gets their master's is doing something that you shouldn't do for some people that is the right move. But I, I do think it kind of diminishes one's own ability to set, you know, blaze their own trail and and really discover and find what it what what is their unique thing to contribute and really invest in that. There's so much of forcing on onto kids of, you know, what is what do you want to be and what's the path that you want to go down? But it's like, well, I don't know. And I have to nurture these different interests of mine and and develop some skills and create some things to begin to figure that out and figure out where I slot in, especially now as the pace of change is so, it's just so high that a lot of these jobs that exist when kids are young are radically transformed by the time they're actually out in the working force. So um, it just, there needs to be a, I think, a cultivated desire for adaptation, you know, mm. uh, and resilience and, and kind of recognizing that and being able to see how they can provide value that is becoming increasingly important rather than the sort of road memorization and regurgitation of, of facts and figures, you know, these things just, just doesn't matter anymore. And it's really interesting. Now you're seeing things like chat GPT that can write pretty, pretty good essays mm. and stuff like mm. that. It's going to challenge 
these education institutions and hopefully it will challenge them in the direction of, okay, well, now this technology exists. Well, what can we get them to focus on that isn't just writing this essay? Mm. What can they build a project? Can they use this technology to create something interesting that it goes beyond just writing an essay? You know, those kinds of questions. Now, whether or not that happens, that depends on your faith and, you know, how adaptable and nimble these education institutions are. And do they really exist to educate us or do they exist to kind of inculcate this this respect for authority and this this sort of need to comply? And in a lot of cases, I feel like it does do that. There have been times in my past when I reflect on it, I was like, that really felt like a prison for young people. That didn't feel like a, a place for learning and growth. So, you know, it some people are fortunate to be in different institutions than that. I think it I think it really depends. Fortunately, there's a lot of information out there. People can go on YouTube University, the amount of people who are out there teaching. You can learn so much these days if when you're not in school, you know, so there's there's really that's a real blessing, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think at some point in the conversation, I would love to unpack ways that you've refined your ability to be resilient and to adapt and to think differently. And actually, maybe one of the ways that we can on-ramp into that is your one of the hats that you wear is as a magician. And mm -hmm. I, I would love to talk about how you arrived at that as something that you were interested in. And I think one of the other lenses that I find really fascinating about magic is the way that we are constructing our reality. And so there's the reality from your end of being the magician. And there's the way that let's just say I'm an observer spectator at one of your performances. The reality that I'm seeing isn't what's actually happening. And I, I feel like this is something that you could riff on for a really long time. So I know that this is a mouthful, but I yeah. guess what, what initially drew you to magic would be a good place to start here. Mm. Yeah. It's been this inexplicable interest since since I was very young I remember reading all the Harry Houdini books that I could get my hands on in the school library and this was you know before I had access to any real magical training you could say I didn't have anyone there to really teach me and anything you could buy from this you know the supermarket or the toy store was was pretty lackluster in terms of what you could what you could do and I think there was just the enthusiasm for provoking wonder in people, mm. seeing how like the astonishment in their eyes, seeing how they would just be bewildered by something, by witnessing the impossible. The feeling of being able to create that in people was something that I think was really attractive to me. And the, there's also this, there's a side of it that is the cultivation of a refined skill that requires a lot of dexterity and and just attention to detail because it's a skill that is designed to not be seen oddly enough the the better it is you know if you can't see it the better it is you know what i mean so i spent a lot of time working on these things that are meant to be invisible, which is an odd thing to spend a lot of time on, but people get the experience on the other side, which is a meaningful thing for me. So both of those things were really, I, I got a lot of satisfaction out of making things invisible and, and seeing the consequence 
of of their invisibility and their by analogy i started to see a lot of the world this way it it made me a little bit more i think prone to diving deeper and try and look behind the curtain where it might seem to be a wall you know where many people may just assume, take things for face value i have a hard time taking things for face value because i can just see that there are layers of reality that can be stacked on top of one another to create a false impression. And, and so that it, it just made, made me realize there are a lot of cases that, you know, people are, are being fooled much in the way that they're being fooled with a magic trick. It just doesn't have the punchline. They don't see that it's obviously invisible or that obvious or that it was obviously impossible. It's just, Wow they just go on thinking that that is the truth. You know, you see this in a lot of cases in the media uh, where certain stories will be told or they're framed in a certain way that is not really the truth, but is, is the truth sort of tied together in a certain way to create a false impression. And, and people just carry that around with them. They just take it, you know, for face value. And I have come to realize that there are all these sort of coalescing forces in culture to that are designed to produce these sorts of impressions in people call it propaganda call it misinformation you know call it incentives whatever you want to call it it's out there and it exists and uh, it's designed to get people to to think and act in certain ways yeah could you could you say more about hmm, what where do i want to go here so like maybe I'll I'll reflect back what I'm hearing and then we can mm -hmm. we could see if we could riff off of it because so ostensibly I think people know what they're signing up for with a magic trick is that there's an illusion it comes across a certain way but there's there's someone who's kind of pulling strings that's making it look a certain way and we we buy into it there's kind of some sort of mutual agreement there and one of the realizations that it sounds like you made is okay that exists in magic and that's also true in real life except it's in more insidious ways that people aren't as aware of there's there's realities being constructed by people all the time and they're accepted as true with a capital t even though most of the time they are projections or kind of belief systems and there's all sorts of reasons that they're believed to be true. There's so many things that intersect and collide with each other, call it culture or you know, propaganda. There's, there's so many different things. So I, I guess one of my curiosities is did, was it a coincidence? Did, was it happenstance? Did you fall upon it to understand from the perspective of a magician that, you saw, oh, like a lot of actual realities that people are creating, it it's like this too. Or, yeah, I guess, I guess what what what's the question here? Do, are you are you following like kind of where I'm going with it? I think so. It sounds like you're asking, did I did I make this connection? You know, the to be able to take this sort of analogy of performing these magic tricks. You know, how did I how did I make that leap from here to being able to see this pattern out in the world more widely outside of the yeah. context of magic tricks? And I think the big thing was just showed me how faulty people's perception was. You know, I'm doing something right in front of them and they can't see it. And mm. it's just and it's and it's pretty good. But there are some cases where 
you know, there are, there are things you could do as a magician that you think people are going to, they're going to see, you feel like they're going to catch you, but they don't and they never do. And that's, it just shows you that there's, you know, a, a lot of people might overestimate their ability to not be fooled. And so they walk around getting fooled all the time, but never realizing it because like I said before, there isn't the same kind of punchline like there is in magic. And then their desire to, you know, there's all of these things that happen where they begin to build the way that they've been fooled into their identity. And rather than admitting that maybe they had been deceived or that they had gotten something wrong, they'll dig their heels in and hold on to that belief so as to not feel like their identity is threatened or their sense of belonging is threatened when that, that you know, deception is woven into the tapestry of a, a broader community or, or worldview, you know, they'll, they'll just hold on to it. And so, yeah, it just makes you realize that there's, there's a lot of ways that people can be deceived. And there are a lot of people who have reasons to deceive and it, it happens, it happens a lot. And these are sometimes subtle, subtle deceptions or just like maybe, you know, three quarter truths, half truths. And other time they're, they're full blown lies. And it's just, it's happening a lot and it, it happens more and more with new, as, as new technology develops, we see new ways, you know, sort of new avenues for people to deploy, you know, their, their deception inside of those new, new categories and new, new spaces. So, so this just has become woven into the way that I, I see the world. I think truth is a lot harder to come by than people, than a lot of people, you know, really reckon with, you know, it, it feels like most people think that they see the world in a way that is mostly accurate. At least that's my impression. Yeah. And I, I, I have a hard time really reconciling that in my own mind, because I think back to our ancestors and all the things that they got wrong, you know, all these <laughs> things that to us, it's just like, what are you guys doing? And then, but, but I, but then we think that like our ancestors aren't going to look back thinking the same thing. Like what if 90% of what we think that, that we just think is just fact and true is pretty misguided and, and wrong in a lot of ways that we can't anticipate, but it's just sort of woven into our, our sort of the cultural zeitgeist and just, it feels true, even though it isn't. And it's hard for me to shake that feeling. So I find myself uh, wanting to reside in the mystery. Remember mm -hmm. how much of this is, is a deep mystery. And the beautiful thing about doing that is there's so much uh, less, less to be threatened. I don't need to hold on to these like, you know, constructs or these ways of viewing the world and, and hold on to them and assert them as my identity and what brings my life meaning. I can have a lot more of a, a loose grip around things and try things on, you know, more freely and, and also be at awe at the mystery that is before us in this life. And that is a, that's a beautiful thing, you know, and it, it, there's this, phrase I kept sort of reciting to myself. I forget. I don't know if I heard it somewhere or if I heard it from some voice inside me or where it came from, but it's the sense that the deepest answer is shaped like a question. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's rather than intellectually holding on to something, it's more of a, it's an open-handedness towards the world and towards things. And that actually frees us to, 
to feel the world in a way that we wouldn't be able to if we're you know too busy holding on and asserting and having closed fists around things. And I I think unfortunately a lot of people have these closed fists because you know it, it comes back the sense of belonging thing, feeling like they're right, feeling like they've got something. And so I, I see this with alternative media as well. This is the tricky thing that we're in is that a lot of institutional media has lost trust. And so people swing over to alternative media, but incentives to lie and deceive exist inside of that as well. So some people think, well, I can't trust this, but I can trust alternative media. They're going to tell me what's true. In a lot of cases, that's not true either. So people are swinging from one weird incentive system and, and fabrication of reality over here to another one with entirely different systems of incentives, but still deception occurs there. And so it's really hard for people to figure out what the hell's going on. Mm. And it's that's a hard problem to solve. So that's yeah. maybe that gets into some of the what you were wanting in in a, in a retort from me. Yeah, it gets into much of it. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, in my experience, and it seems like in a lot of people's experience, there is at least historically for me, and I know it's true for much of the world, there is a deep desire for control in a world that is highly uncontrollable. And it actually, what I'm hearing in your response is that you kind of, in some ways, you delight in the mystery and complexity and uncertainty of, of the world. And, and you can bring awe and wonder and, and genuine deep curiosity where I think it can be really disorienting for a lot of people to not have these rigid, firm, like, this is the truth. And I need to get other people to believe that truth. And, and there's probably a lot of different ways, like you said, the power of living into questions and not answers has been helpful. And I, I know that you've done, you've had psychedelic experiences. There's probably so many things that have opened up your worldview, but I'm wondering how you have refined that ability to not only be like tolerate the uncertainty of life and the mystery of life, but to be like, this is like, this is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful that life is a mystery and that I, I can't know. Mm. Yeah. Great question. I feel like I'm going to say that after every question you ask me, because all of them are, are really <laughs> thought provoking. This, I think part of it is when, when you're able to inhabit this space of uncertainty that we're talking about is that it frees up the attention to actually see and appreciate the beauty around us. When we're fixated on asserting our beliefs and proving our worldviews and all of these kinds of things, it, it preoccupies the attention in a way that we can't really be present and see and notice the blades of grass and the waves crashing and all of these kinds of things. So I think in, in part, it, it's that it liberates us. The the need for certainty constrains the, you know, our attention in certain ways. And by relaxing that, it opens us up, opens us up to see the world with new eyes in some ways. So, so that's part of it for sure. And I think there's this phrase in Buddhism, I think is popular. I think Pema Chodron may have been the person that I've, I came across it, uh, but groundlessness, and it matches to this feeling of life being like a free fall and people want want it to be like they're standing on solid ground but it really you really don't know what's going to happen so 
I imagine myself falling through a valley, you know, and people want to latch on to things and, and try and grab onto people and grab onto branches. But if you allow yourself to just fall rather than scrambling, then you are open up to seeing the beauty of your surroundings, you know, like actually for the first time, seeing the valley that you're falling through. You're so afraid of the fall that it's it's just that the you, you're so preoccupied. You can't even see it. You can't witness the beauty. And by doing that, it's just it's like the question is like, what's the difference between falling with no end and flying with no destination? You know, it's like it's it's a change in perspective, but you can like move with the air currents. You can now, you know, be be present to the the sort of transformation and the change that that you are thrust into. And you know, it's it's sort of inextricable. So we're trying to stop and halt a process that we can't halt. And that just creates a lot of unnecessary suffering. Although I get why people do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of the Mark Twain quote. I, I don't know verbatim exactly what it is, but it, it's something along the lines of, I've been through many hardships of my life, most of which never happened. <laughs> Meaning a lot of times with anxiety, we were ruminating on the thing that we want to control that we're scared won't happen if we don't control it. And what I'm hearing from you in the Pema Chodron quote is that if we just maybe surrender is the word that comes to mind or trust and don't let anxiety control us in that way. We realize that it's actually a beautiful thing to be able to flow with the uncertainty of life and and to not, we don't have to try and be so calculated and yeah, like plan and control for every single potential fear and and worry and (laughs) thing that's out of, it's all out of our control anyway, but right. And so I, I love that. And it's it's very evident in hearing your other appearances that you've made in your writing that you're, you've refined this ability for a, quite some time. And I'm wondering if there's maybe experientially, are there things that you've gone through? Because I know it's, it's one thing to think about it. And I've had to learn this the hard way the last few years. Like I, I came in touch with all these beautiful ideas, but I wasn't practicing them in a way that it was like my nervous system was adjusting. Have you experienced moments where you brushed up against what felt like you know, your boundary of I, control or something like that? And and you re, you kind of learned like, yeah, I'm going to be okay if I do a trust fall here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. I, I mean, one of these ways is we seek certainty in some in some way through the jobs that we take you know having the regular paycheck and that kind of stuff helps provide us with a degree of certainty that is very useful and by no means am i saying that that is not something that people should pursue i had it i had a different experience though when i left school i haven't had like a standard office job or or like proper like in the workforce job since 2013. So it's almost been a decade of, of sort of entrepreneurial and, and, you know, style, you know, work, work dynamics where I'm, I'm finding opportunities and working with people or, you know, trying new things. And, you know, this is not with like a huge 
nest egg of savings that I'm leaning on or relying on. And, and this created a, you know, my, my career, so to speak, has been very much a, a trust fall. And there have been times where, you know, I, it may have been the intelligent, like the wise thing to do would have been, you know, I just go get a job for a little while or save up some money doing this, you know? So what I'm saying, I'm not suggesting people do what I did, but there are periods where it was just like, I, I don't know where this next, like the, the next batch of money that I need to survive on is going to come from. Mm. And I'm also, I'm also not going to scramble and like bang on every single door that I can to try and I'm just going to see what happens. I mean, it got to, there was a point where I didn't know where I was going to be sleeping. You know, like I didn't have a, my next spot sort of lined up. I wasn't strictly speaking homeless, but I, I didn't have like clarity around like, where's my next, what's my next spot, you know? And there was this period of time where like having, having this experience where I was like super sparse in resources while also knowing that I felt like I had a lot of value to bring and a lot of, a lot of talent and skill. It's just like those two things weren't lining up, but I was just like, okay, let's just remain present and let's just have faith that this is going to work out. And, and it did, you know, I always found, I always like found my way through and times it felt like I was a stone skipping along water, you know, where if like I hit the wrong thing, I could have just, I could just sink, but I made it a, what made my way across to solid land and having this experience allowed me to really appreciate these things that, you know, I had come to take for granted, just no, like having a roof over my head and a warm bed to sleep in are such like base comforts that I think a lot of people just take for granted and it's just not to be taken for granted. It's just such a luxury, you know? And so having that, it's like, okay, wow, I'm already feeling that wealth of having that, you know, these days is just, oh, well, this thing didn't work out or or that thing didn't work out. It's just my reference point for satisfaction has changed, you know, because I'm like, I have I have these these foundations set. So going through that experience where those things weren't set, that felt very much up in the air and sort of uncertain and really having to confront this this mass amount of uncertainty in my own life, my own sort of trajectory and just trusting the unfolding of, of the events and just seeing where things would guide me. It allowed me to find the appreciation for these things that I think are easy to not acknowledge. And, you know, there are other ways as well. Like there have been a few experiences I've had where I've had to eject myself from, you know, social like groups that, you know, I, I came to realize weren't, you know, weren't best for me. It wasn't in my best interest to sort of stick around and and, and be around people. And and even moving from Pennsylvania to, to Colorado, these sort of resets of my social life, you know, so much of our identity is informed by, you know, our the, the people that surround us and the ways that they reflect back to us who we are. So to have those social resets really put me in another sort of um, strange position of identity. My identity became less concentrated and, and concretized and more fluid to the, to the landscape around me. So it's like, well, okay, I have to be open and receptive to how I'm, how I'm going to change here. So those are some of the ways that I feel like 
I've been, it's been really in my face, you know, like, mm -hmm. oh, I have to, this is really uncertain. Like this isn't pretend, this isn't intellectual uncertainty. This is really like high stakes uncertainty that I've had to navigate through. And again, I'm not saying that this is something that people should go out and pursue. It's just how my path unfolded for me. And I found ways to take what was hardship and turn it into, you know, lessons for myself that I get to carry with me as these, these jewels of, of insight and, and inspiration. And, you know, there are people who could have walked that same path and, and, you know, really found themselves in a cyclone of, of difficulty that would be, you know, really hard to get out, out from. So I see myself as fortunate. There is something called like survivorship bias or survivor's bias or something like that. So I'm not saying that, you know, you just have to put yourself in these really difficult circumstances and you'll be able to relate to life like I do. This is just my path and this is just how it unfolded for me. And there are other ways that people can deal with this stuff. And I think one of those ways is through loss, you know, like mm -hmm. this is one of the, the, this is something that is inevitable for everyone. Not everyone has to go through the, the weird curly cues of my own story, but everyone, you know, people go through breakups or people lose a, a, a pet or people lose a person, you know, and, and this, this is destabilizing to that concrete world. This makes things feel a lot more fluid and you realize, oh, wow, none of this is promised. And uncertainty is, is, is felt palpably when we lose people because we, we realize that, you know, the future that we had been forecasting isn't going to materialize because this person will no longer be around to participate. Yeah, beautiful. And, and thank you for sharing all that. I, I personally take for granted many times my daily comforts of having a bed and taking a warm shower and having a roof over my head, things I really take for granted. And I think I, I appreciate you naming that. Yeah, it's not for everyone. And I'm not saying like, go out there and really show yourself that even without money and without anything, like you're going to be okay. But I wrote down a couple of things that I think can be really helpful that I look at. And, and one of them is voluntary hardship, which is a concept from the Stoics, where you don't actually have to go be homeless. But if you really, I don't know, cut yourself off from spending for a couple of days and eat really bland basic food and wear kind of raggedy clothing or minimalist type of clothing, you'll realize your life really substantially is about the same. It's not, and I don't want to diminish, of course, what it is to actually be in hardship and to be homeless and to experience homelessness. But from a place of privilege, you can really, you can mimic a lot of the circumstances of, yeah, I don't have a lot of resources right now and kind of teach your nervous system that you're going to be okay. And, and one that I do on a daily basis, and I, I haven't done a lot of 24 hour fasts as much recently, but I do 16 to 18, even maybe sometimes 20 hour fasts. And you will appreciate that first bite of food if you have not done fasting before and you start doing that. So there's kind of built in ways you don't actually have to go all the way to the edge to show yourself like, yeah, I, I'm not going to take that next bite of food for granted because I actually know what it is to be hungry now versus waking up, having a bite of food right away being cranky an hour later saying I need another bite and just like really not allowing yourself to be in any sort of discomfort. I have found these to be really, 
they've been like shape shifting for me in a lot of ways. And I, I haven't really pushed myself to that boundary of, I really don't have money and I don't have a safety net and I don't know where my next bite of food is coming from. And I've also kind of showed myself that I'm going to be okay without all that. So I just, I wanted to name that as kind of a corollary to what you were speaking to. It's, it is accessible to all of us to do this without really going all the way to the boundary. Totally. Yeah. Before you mentioned it, it was, it was already rattling in my mind, the voluntary discomfort piece. And I think that is super useful practice. It can change the, the landscapes of, you know, where, where we have complaints, you know, like mm-hmm. the things that we complain about or that bother us or, or annoy us. It's like, okay, well don't eat for a day and then do those things by, by comparison or sleep on the floor you know, try that Yeah. or go for, go for like a 12 hour walk, you know, or these kinds of things. And you start to, it starts to put things in perspective. I think that, you know, we, sh- we lived for thousands of years without these structures that are temperature controlled, you know, the, the entitlement that we, that we feel in some ways is, is pretty, pretty wild. And that, makes us more prone to be concerned with what Sarah said about Jesse at work or what, you know, (laughs) why your, your favorite TV show got canceled or what that person said on Twitter. It's like, what can we concern ourselves with something a little bit more meaningful, but because we find ourselves so latched onto these things, I think that causes us to get concerned with things that are genuinely more trivial. So yeah, I think voluntary discomfort is a is a really interesting practice. And there's a lot of wisdom to be gathered from the Stoics. I wouldn't just self-describe myself as a Stoic, but I definitely appreciate what I've read of them. Mm-hmm. I, and I know you're, you're influenced by at least Alan Watts is someone that has come up and maybe there's poetry at large, David White. So if, if not the Stoics, and you don't have to talk about Alan Watts, but I'd be curious to here like who if you had to pick a couple of people or a school of thought or any you could take it any direction you'd like but what are what are some of the influences of the way that you think or who are some of the influences of the way that you think and and how have they shaped it yeah alan is yeah i love alan watts i mean i spent a period of time where i read three of his books in rapid succession i read the book the Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are. That was the first book I read from him. This was after spending, you know, many months listening to his YouTube lectures, which what, what a happy thing for him, you know, if it's just odd that he was walking around, you know, recording these lectures for people. And then all these years later, he, he has these lectures uploaded to something called YouTube that gets thousands of of listens from people who you know weren't born until he was already dead it's just interesting how legacies can can form like that and how people can can linger long after their death inside of new technology and so i read the book and then i read the wisdom of insecurity which is my favorite of his it's one of my favorite books in general i think it's so that really captures a lot of the stuff around uncertainty that i i started to you know, that, that paired with that uncertainty conversation we're having earlier that really, really goes well. And then it was The Way of Zen was the last book I read. And reading those things in succession 
really, it changed the way that I pilot my consciousness. That's what it feels like it did. It showed me things about the inner workings of my own mind that I hadn't previously been aware of. And it kind of felt like I had been trying to drive a car from a like a backseat kid's steering wheel. Is, and I convinced <laughs> that the movements I was making were making a meaningful difference in the direction things were going. That's sort of what, it, what I started to realize. And I realized, and I was gripping the wheel so tightly and I could just relax that. Another way to analogize it would be I was spending my time building houses in my mind of concepts and trying to make them pristine and make them really like accurate maps rather than building instruments, you know, like a lasso or something. It's like having some static formation of like, this is the way that it is. Right. And it's like, no, it's more like a, just grasp onto whatever's present and, and examine it for what it is and let things sort of dissolve and come together and dissolve and come together rather than needing to feel like, okay, it's all in place. I got it all in place. So it allowed me to just be a lot more open to the the movements of my mind, you know, and find a deeper sense of of presence rather than getting lost in the mirage is what I started calling it because I found so much of my daily attention. I really try to start paying attention to my attention and mm-hmm. and looking in the, like stepping out in these moments when my mind would just run and just l- subtly get out of it for a minute and see what was going on. You know, it's like, oh, wow, I'm really spending a lot of time thinking about things that aren't in the room. So bringing myself back into the room and, and just, okay, I'm here. This connects back to the the Mark Twain quote that you, that you mentioned of, you know, the struggle, the, the many struggles that we've lived through or, you know, whatever it was. And so by, by dropping, you know, more deeply into the present, I, I realized how much of the stuff that was my mind was ruminating over just never materialized, just never happened. It was just me spinning my wheels in my own head. And so it's like, oh, okay, let's look at that tree instead, instead of like obsessing over this thing in my mind. Hmm. There's somebody else. Go ahead. I could get into as well. Yeah, go for it. So I don't, I haven't like deeply studied his work, but there is a thing that I learned from Craig Chalquist and he wrote about I've spent a lot of time uh, being very curious about the hero's journey and Joseph Campbell. And I just find that, you know, narrative is so important to, to a human being, the stories we tell ourselves and, and Craig found this, it's not a translation of the hero's journey, but it's, it's a, maybe a broadening and it, it's called the journey of reenchantment. And he talks about how we grow and we're born into this world of magic. And then as we, as we grow, we become alienated from that world of magic and not everyone finds their way back, but some people do after a rupture, like a loss or some extreme uncertainty that kind of shows them that the world that they had built around themselves was, you know, illusory, even though it felt really, really real and rigid and static and immovable, something happens that shows that it's not. And then that sort of creates this wormhole, you know, back into that world. He calls it finding the magic door, you know, where you can begin to walk back into this, into this world and and see the magic that you once encountered as a child. And this is part, 
part of what I mean by like returning to the mystery and, and really living in that mystery and seeing the world from that, from that vantage point. And so this whole process, you know, there's more nuance to it than what I'm describing, but finding, finding the magic door, you know, after we've been alienated from that magical world, because we have to grow through the education system and become refined for the workforce and all of this stuff to be able to find our way back. That can be one of the hidden gifts of these negative things that happen in our lives, like a loss, like being fired from your job, like, you know, a breakup, whatever these things might be, they can rip open that world and and allow us to venture into, you know, what we've sealed ourselves off from. So mm -hmm. I found his perspective really resonant because I felt myself kind of alienated from that magical world, even though I've always kept a part of myself connected to it. And the magic tricks, interestingly enough, it's like I kind of knew that I was like do there was an illusion going on around me you know that there, this world of of grades and salaries and stuff were you know kind of obfuscating this deeper richness that i was so in touch with as a child but it's still like the trick still worked on me you know the magic mm -hmm. trick still worked on me for a while until i found my way back through you know all these different you know happenings in my life these that were both very difficult and emotionally challenging or very beautiful you know and and ecstatic it, they come in different ways but i found that frame really interesting and trying to walk people to that magic door is something i like to spend my time you know investing in mm -hmm. what would you say like where were you at in your life that you were ready to open that magic door? I, I'm I'm definitely hearing that in some ways that you were, you were maybe it was on the horizon. You could always see it from a distance, but the, the illusion is really powerful. And I can subscribe to that too, or ascribe to that too. And um, I'm wondering what, you know, where you were at in your, in your life. Was there something that happened that was there one of those painful moments that you described a breakup? Or anything at all that helped you be more ready to look for the magic door again? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's been a lot of them. Yeah. Let's see. It typically happens after a sort of rupture. And, and the, it's interesting because it was sort of a period of ruptures. You know, the first, you know, when I moved out to Colorado, it was to work with this guy, Phil, and we we're going to, you know, just me and him tag team growing his business together. And that lasted about a year. And when we sort of broke free from one another, not free, like we were trapped in prison together, but when we went our separate ways, it was like, wow, there's all this landscape of possibility now. But at that time, it was still really hard to not feel like very clenched around it, very oh, I'm squeezed by this uncertainty. And this is very scary because I've never been in this in this predicament before. So at that time, that rupture really didn't, you know, I was I was looking more for like the doorknob to safety than I was to actually walking into this this uncertainty. And I think, you know, one one of them that may have been really significant was a breakup that I had. And you know, when I when I was younger, I, I was with this woman for about a year and a half. And the it just, it was a devastating breakup for me. You know, it just really, it, it crushed me. 
And it wasn't, you know, very, it wasn't dramatic or anything. It wasn't like, uh, she threw my clothes on the the yard or there was cheating or anything like that. It's just like, we didn't work out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helped sort of let me grow out of a, a more infantile formulation of love, you know, and, and, you know, really reckon with like loss, like part of, part of the, the devastation that I experienced was paying the debt of not really acknowledging that that could happen at any point. And I was sort of living in la la land that we were going to stay together or whatever. And not really just entertaining that, you know, these things happen and people, people go their separate ways. So, so I think that allowed me to, it kind of, it didn't harden me, but it made me more appreciative of of the, of the people and the things that I had in my life. And I think that meant that I was more free to pursue, pursue this magic door, you know, pursue this world beyond, you know, the, you know, get, you know, ascending the career hierarchy and all this stuff. And because I came to the conclusion that I was going to lose everything anyway, you know? So the, like holding on to these things that are inevitable will inevitably be lost back to the sort of closed, closed grip thing. This reminds me of a quote that I love. Absolutely love. I'm going to read it because it, it just so deeply sticks with me from Jeff Foster. And, uh, and he says, you will lose everything, your money, your power, your fame, your success, perhaps even your memories. Your looks will go, loved ones will die. Your body will eventually fall apart. Everything that seems permanent is impermanent and will be smashed. Everything will gradually or not so gradually strip away everything that it can strip away. Waking up means facing this reality with open eyes and no longer turning away. But right now we stand on sacred and holy ground. For that which will be lost has not yet been lost. And realizing this is the key to unspeakable joy. Whoever or whatever is in your life right now has not yet been taken away from you. This may sound trivial, obvious, like nothing. But really knowing it is the key to everything. The why and how and wherefore of existence. And permanence has already rendered everything and everyone around you so deeply holy and significant and worthy of your heartbreaking gratitude. Loss has already transfigured your life into an altar. And I think that is just, it, it helps reformulate a core problem of life, which is navigating loss and this really beautiful disposition, you know, and it enables me to try and appreciate things and, and do things that I wouldn't otherwise do because I'm really wholeheartedly trying to live from this place that these things they're going to be taken from me at some point. I don't know when, and maybe I'll be taken from them before, you know, and, and they'll have these actions that I took to, to like live on in their memory, which I would be very happy uh, that, that, I, that I took those actions. And so I think that that connects somehow I'm, I'm in the weeds now with, with everything that I've been saying, but that's, that's that. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I really, really appreciate you going there and sharing that. Loss in, I think there's a couple of things about it. It, I look at loss a lot of times as a badge of honor of really loving and 
like you said, wholehearted at one point, and it, it evoked that for me, that if you are really heartbroken, it means that you really love. And, and that's in some ways, it's, it's not to diminish the process of grieving, but it is to say how important it is to, to love and that it hurts when something is taken from you. And there, there's also that powerful realization that there's something strangely liberating about really making direct eye contact with the impermanence of life and, and mm -hmm. mortality. And that all of this is, it's going to be gone in the blink of an eye. And the, one of the things that we could maybe fall into is despair or despondence, mm. but perhaps a more empowered look at it and, and something that I aspire to is to look at it as something liberating that, yeah, like all these things that I'm worried about, <laughs> We're all we're all kind of headed to the same place anyway. We're all gonna die, and let's not leave anything on the table here. Let's uh, let's make sure that we bring our full heart, our full love, our full energy to things that are meaningful to us, and and start opening those magic doors that we want to open. If if it's in there, even if it's like a little whisper in, in my soul, I I'm starting to become more and more attuned to like let's manifest this into even if it's something really small like that that whisper from my soul might be let's just really appreciate looking outside today 10 percent more than you normally would it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be some sort of massive heroic impact mission statement which i i think we could have a whole other discussion about that that one way that people respond to their impermanence and their mortality is to like try and be immortal with the amount of impact and, and meaning that they created in their life, right? Like making a dent into infinity. But mm. what it more, what it more evokes for me is just to appreciate the beauty of a lot of the maybe ordinary mundane moments. It's, it's a question that I ask every podcast, actually, maybe I can, I'll give you a, a little bit of time to ruminate with it, but I ask every podcast and I will ask you this at some point, what an ordinary moment that brings you great joy, an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. Mm. And I, I think I love that question so much because it's, <laughs> there aren't that many different answers. There's, there's so much beauty to be had in every day though, but you can see the way that every single person I've interviewed about 70 people on this show, every single person I ask, there is something really tender and true about sharing that, that talking about the millions of people who listened to or watched my show on TV or on YouTube, it's like, it's not, it's not the same thing. And so I, I really aspire to orient myself in this way that when facing my mortality, I will just not withhold any aspects of myself in a way that I might, if I think I'm going to live forever. So I, I appreciate you. It, I, I was hearing towards the end there, like, I don't know, I was kind of lost in the weeds, but it was a really beautiful sentiment to, to presence in this conversation and really powerful way to live your life. Yeah. The, we're having this thing where I'm like, I'm, after I speak, I'm like linger. There's like this lingering impression of the words I just spoke in my mind, like different threads I could pick up and then you're picking them up, mm. you know, without me speaking them. And that I was, before you said it out of the word of like finding that magic in the mundane is like, 
and then and then you you go and then you you're you're you know hitting on that same sentiment and i think that is so important and that's really what this is about this isn't about i mean great if you want to make if you if you live a life that has some heroic impact on the world fantastic but i agree that there are ways that people rage against their lack of immortality by trying to create this you know world changing you know mission statement and meanwhile completely disconnected from the swirl of their surroundings not really nurturing the world that is around them and that is their world first the other world they're trying to change is the abstract world you know the world that is the model in their mind it's the real world around them is the world that they're in touch with they're actually in living contact with and so by being in living contact with that world from a place that is nurturing and appreciative we can plant seeds and and really grow things from there that we you know we can't even imagine the impact that that can have so those things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive but i think finding that appreciation you know and being able to witness that tree that is waving in the wind for its own unique splendor and not just yeah that's a tree blowing and just like reflexively you know just oh that's that's what that is i've seen what that is a thousand a million times before nothing nothing to see here it's like no there is something to see there it's your life right in front of you and yeah this it calls to mind this fallacy of significance that i've i feel like i'm going to try to describe this but people feel insignificant when they interact when they like try to comprehend the scale of the universe but significant isn't determined by scale or size you know from my perspective significance is has nothing to do with size at all you know and you can have this moment of deep significance with someone that never sees the light of day outside of that moment but the, its significance is not diminished because of that it's it exists in its own right and so i've never been maybe I wouldn't say never, maybe I, I did and I just forget, but I don't find myself feeling at odds with my own, the significance of my own life and the scale of the universe. They don't feel like they're in competition at all. There's sort of a grandeur of like, whoa, how big is this world that we're in? But having these small moments uh, that no one might ever see or, or witness, or that isn't remembered or told in the history books, it doesn't matter. It's like every, like, Sometimes legacy is a fixation on what people will say after we're gone, but they won't know you. And what they'll say about you is probably half truth at best. And their imagining of you is self-serving in some ways, you know, it not really represents you. So the people that have the best chance of knowing you are the people that are around you today. And, you know, can we, can we nurture that? And yeah, this gets into a whole other inclination that I have around loss that it connects to this idea that, you know, separation is in the mind. And I, I like, I can't remove myself from my surroundings. I can go somewhere to other surroundings, maybe that no one's around me, but my, I am permanently embedded in surroundings as a fact of experience. And that embedding is really important because I'm shaped by it and I shape it in turn, but there's that co-sculpting dynamic that has been going on since I was born. And then that co-sculpting dynamic has been occurring for 
so long before I even got here that the the sort of momentum of that has contributed to shaping who I am today. So I feel that sort of embeddedness and uh, clasped togetherness of of life and being in this world that makes me realize that you know when I die or when people who who I have lost their their absence is their physical body is no longer present but there are ways that they remain and I the analogy that I that I came to sort of really love here was the the feeling that you know when someone dies it's like a flame that gets extinguished you know it's like that spark is just and you can't even feel it you know like the the lack of their their presence like the absence feels real it's it's it feels like they're gone you know and they are gone in this way and so so rather than flame extinguished which feels like a really good analogy for it like when you lose somebody, it's like, I get why, why that's an analogy that, that people have come to, you know, feeling like the spark of life has been snuffed out and this person, is, you know, this bright light has been taken from us and these kinds of things. But I, I like that to say that, you know, life or loss and death is not a flame extinguished. Death is a dandelion. And the it's a loss of a structure. You know, the structure is it, it goes away like something does go away when someone dies. But there, these seeds, you know, get mm. get lifted into the wind, and it's unclear where they're going to land or how they're going to land. But you know, they they can find this fertile ground, and and they can land in people and and act in way like support, you know, through the memories that they have and and whatnot. Like the the people and and animals that I've lost still live on in me in these really interesting ways because I was sculpted by them. You know, I do not exist in isolation. There's this way that we, that, that a lot of people intellectualize themselves mm -hmm. and think of themselves as this, this entity that exists outside of the flowing processes that they have been embedded in their entire lives. And it's, that's an illusion. They are not that entity. Then, and the, there's good news too, because that it's, it's so like, it diminishes their grandeur. One of the ways I've described this to, to people in the past is it feels like a lot of people confuse themselves for a clothes hanger diorama of the solar system rather than the real thing. And the real thing is obviously much more like just astonishing, just unbelievable. And the detail is so rich and vivid and just yeah. the nuance to it, the complexity. The, the clothes hanger diorama is just like, oh, yeah, this is what I think it is. I pieced it together. And this... There's so many holes in our self-reflected images that we hold of ourselves and that and we reference as like our identities. There's so many things we miss, you know, because, you know, it doesn't correspond to our early childhood wounds that we built a layer of insecurity around and then sort of overcompensated for that or, you know, the ways that we were affirmed early on. And, you know, we weave together these identities that exclude so much of the background information. And so drawing that forward and seeing that there's so much more to us than, than we've assembled in these, these little toy models in our minds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm getting you, you invoked the the diorama of the solar system versus the actual galaxy. And I, I was picturing 
Uh, one of my friends in college jokingly said, why would I travel to Italy to see the Colosseum? I could just pull up a, an image on Google Images. And <laughs> it's, it, it is similar to me in that way that, yeah, you can kind of get an idea for what it looks like, but to actually experience being in the Colosseum or actually, I don't know if you've seen the movie Goodwill Hunting, but the, the scene, there's a scene where Robin Williams and Matt Damon are having a sit down because Matt Damon just basically took a giant shit all over Robin Williams's kind of therapeutic practice. And he, he criticized one of his paintings and he criticized, he was asking about the books and they're sitting down on a park bench and Robin Williams basically goes like, you could tell me everything about the Mona Lisa, but you haven't actually stood there under and, and really felt the depths of its beauty. And you could tell me about love and you could tell me about all these different things from reading Shakespeare, but you've never actually really risked being vulnerable with another human being. And you, there's something, it's just so much different to intellectually is what you're pointing to, to like kind of understand something. I think it's one of our mathematical ways of looking at loss that it's like, well, we're down, you know, one, one less person on the planet today, but what you're describing is the inherent interconnectedness. And it's not only of humanity, but it's, to me, it's at large. We're, we're all interconnected with every being and every plant and every thing that is manifest on this planet. And I find that to be a much more generative way of living to realize that we can, we're all kind of intersecting with each other and affecting each other in so many different ways. It's not the, the mind is a beautiful thing in some ways. And also it can't really fathom all of the complexities and mysteries that you're speaking to, especially around loss here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love it. There's like the true legacy is not of a, a person's name. It's, it can be invisible, but it can be these, the sort of lingering effects of a long lost love that it acts as like the root systems and families, you know, like mm -hmm. these, these, this, it could go back generations even, you know, where the, it, it just change, it can change the tone and tenor of these microcosms, these, these little cultures and families that create, you know, the, the ground from which such beauty can emerge that wouldn't have been able to emerge otherwise, because someone didn't love so heroically or love so so brilliantly, you know, and so generously. So that, you know, that is, that can be a, the legacy that we all leave if we, if we can find a way to love those around us such a way that, you know, uh, we, we linger, you know, after, after they're gone in this, in this way that isn't like we're haunting them or, or even ghostly. It's not even, it has, doesn't have anything to do with our identity. It has to do with the impression and the way that we like poured out onto the world. And it sort of tracing back to, you mentioned the friend who say, I could just see an image and it's like, well, you would, you can, you have the option. Can you, you can watch porn or you can have sex. What are you going to choose? <laughs> you know, it's like, this is not the same thing, man. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's a cool callback to, you know, goodwill hunting and uh, rest in peace, Robin Williams. Yes. Yes. Rest in peace, Robin Williams. Indeed. So um, I'm wondering, you know, we, we haven't explicitly spoken about high existence and 
if there's any projects or things that you've been thinking about or any any magic doors that you've been most exploring lately what what comes to mind for you well i've been working on this magic show for some years now just slowly letting it brew and 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 cultivate it and i'm just like kind of enamored by the process of just letting letting this thing grow in its own way and i have periodically i'll have these creative bursts of just recognition where it just will like shoot through from my subconscious and it I'll see so clearly like this, do this, do this. Now that has been kind of, it's been a wild ride because from where I started to where I am now, like there's a lot that's changed and a lot of things that have just died on the vine that have not gotten integrated, but sometimes those things come back around and get resurrected in some surprising way. So that has been something that I've been, you know, wrestling with, playfully, you know, this sort of creative process and allowing, allowing that to emerge and, and unfold. Cause in this, in this world of virality and social media popularity and these kinds of things, there is that temptation where I feel like I want, I want attention and, you know, put your eyes on me and see what I have to say and all these kinds of things. But I connect back. Like I realized that I would much rather perform an intimate magic show for a small group of people once a month for the rest of my life than be famous on social media. Like it would be way more meaningful to do that than the alternative because the kinds of connections I'd be able to form, you know, and the way that we'd be able to drop in. So, so there's that sort of thing that I have been connected with. I've also been exploring artificial intelligence, like a madman, lately and it's been a fascination of mine for some time but it's, it's recently you know the hype the hype train has left the station and everybody's <laughs> talking about it and i think that there is some really interesting places that this is going to go in in you know especially the ways that people will be able to unlock their imagination you know for those willing there's going to be people who just like be sort of Wally, was it was it Wally-esque? You know, they're just drinking their their large sodas and just floating around on their their chairs. But to see some of this generative AI stuff and to to recognize, you know, one company that's really caught my attention is called Runway ML. And they just released this video model called Gen 1. And it's not publicly available yet, but you could assemble your like, you know, I could take decks of playing card boxes and put them in like the structure of like a, a tall building and then, you know, do some interesting panning video around it and then take an image prompt to complement that video or take a, a text prompt or take a few images and overlay that into what I've created to make it look like some spell spellbinding tower, you know, in, in the forest somewhere of some, you know, unknown land or something really fascinating like that. And I think that's such an interesting thing that is going to be accessible to, to people who have that kind of creative inclination and that, that isn't available today unless you really work hard to refine an ability at animating. And that's great. Like that people love to do that. And, and you know, I think animation is amazing, but it's just going to open the doors for new kinds of instruments, you know, new, new creativity. One thing I thought 
I saw that I thought was really cool was this uh, poetry camera that used a large language model to rather than print out a photograph of what it saw, it printed out a, a poem of what mm-hmm. the camera was pointed at. And it's like, that's such a cool application of this technology. So I just wonder what kind of art forms are going to emerge. And on the other side, I think there is, we, you know, who's to say how this all develops, but I do think there could be a really, that when you marry the the social media landscape as it's developed, and then you import AI generated media and commenting and all of this kind of stuff to the we could get to the point where it's just a wasteland of AI generated material that is optimized to game the algorithms. And that could be oddly enough, a very good thing because it sets, it creates the territory for us to build something that is more human centric mm-hmm. where people are participating because they want the human interaction, not because they're interested in virality. So I think it could, it could drive us towards these, an opportunity landscape that allows for the creation of smaller, tighter knit social networks that are based on, you know, cultivating community in a way that doesn't really exist online today. Some people try to cultivate community with some of these existing platforms, but it's pretty hard to do. And I think it could just change the tone of what we look for online because these other platforms become functionally unusable or or just not interesting because they're just so overrun and you don't know if the person that's commenting is an actual person. So finding out, figuring out ways to get around that, even having these gated communities where you need to talk to a real person for them to let you in. And these, these communities can build, you know, slowly over time, almost like guilds or something like that, you know? So I think that, that, that could open the door to some really interesting possibilities that, sort of by putting two negatives together, you get a positive because there are a lot of people who use social media today. It it just hurts their mental health Mm -hmm. and people are already trying to game these algorithms and go viral and become popular and stuff like that. So if you have an AI that can outcompete any person at going viral and then it just overruns everything, oddly enough, it could really open the door, you know, to a more generative and fruitful social media experience. And so... You know, we'll see what that world could look like, what that looks like. I haven't done enough hard thinking to try and imagine it, but it certainly feels like the pathway is there. Yeah. And I really feel like you're onto something there as well, especially with the going from the kind of, I don't know, the come from of, I want to go viral and I want millions of eyeballs in back into I think maybe that's the same. And I'm, I'm definitely forecasting. I'm a little bit out of my element here, but I've had kind of armchair conversations with my dad about the giant corporation maybe ceasing to exist in the way that it does or or losing its the stature that it has in our society and the small business really taking back over because I think small business are, are really the ones that make the biggest, they're most human centric. And in a world where technology is going to be able to do a lot of the kind of algorithmic work that sustains a lot of corporations it it gets back to doing human-centric work and one of the kind of pioneers that i follow around this is seth godin who talks about finding your smallest viable audience and he's been talking about that for a long time that right now probably the most generous thing that a lot of entrepreneurs and creative and maybe solopreneurs can do 
is to really dedicatedly serve a small audience, much like what you were describing with your magic shows, where if you're working a crowd of, I don't know what the number is that you had in mind, but one where you can actually make contact with each of the different people attending, that is making a bigger impact in a way that maybe the rational mind can't fathom, but it's making a bigger impact than say, doing a show in front of 100,000 people where you're not able to make direct contact with many people in the audience, if any at all. And that's a really, there's something about loss in here as well, that like maybe losing what we have around social media and the way that technology is going to really disrupt a lot of different things that are happening. And they're going to be really challenging in some ways, and they're going to open up a lot of opportunities in other ways. Yeah. And it might hearken to the loss that we're all kind of lingering in, in the advent of social media. I mean, I remember there was something precious about going in to knock on my friend's door, not knowing if he would be there, mm-hmm. you know, r- riding over with my bike. And I don't know if kids have that today. It might just be a text message that one mom sends to another or something like that. And you lose out on these sort of moments of serendipity. And, and there's a lot of alienation and atomization that people feel, you know, they don't feel like they have we're more connected, but, but, you know, less connected at the same time, you know, from a different, different perspective where people don't feel like they're these active participants in living community. They're just like a node in a network mm. and some sort of digital infrastructure. And to get back to that, where people don't feel alienated and feel like they're participating in community would be a really beautiful sort of happy accident of this powerful technology emerging, you know, right now, one of this, the, sort of solves for that alienation is creating AI bots that you can talk to, to mimic, you know, human interaction. But I think we got to really prioritize the alternative, which is creating, uh, you know, ways for people to genuinely have human connection instead of trying to mimic it with technology. Let's facilitate it. Let's do that. You know, so we'll see, we'll see if that, if, if we can, you know, chart a course in that direction. I do think what you were saying about, you know, a, a new reign of small businesses is really interesting because um, if you can have AI that does a lot of things that historically, you know, people did, uh, you know, these large companies, do we, do we see the, like, do, do large companies become a lot smaller? And so can, does the, the cost, to moving the same kind of mountains that a large corporation can move, does that become a lot easier for a smaller group? And then can you have, you know, say four or five people build a real strong value center where they're creating stuff that is like really unique and interesting to them mm-hmm. and and that they can create distribution infrastructure as a, as a consequence of this, this powerful technology to, to get the word out there. Now, if everyone has access to that, what does that what does that look like? People yeah. are already overrun. Their cold email inboxes are already, you know, out of control. You know, so it just it just changes the game. But I think it can give people, you know, smaller businesses access to sort of digital manpower that didn't exist before. And I think we're already starting to see smaller businesses take advantage of this to get more done in less time. This is actually a newsletter. I'm starting a new newsletter around AI specifically because it's something that I'm super fascinated by and I want to be a voice that can, you know, 
um, kind of can straddle this line between like, wow, this technology is wonderful, but also like, well, let's not lose our soul in the process mm-hmm. and, and, you know, cr- communicate the possibilities and, and really like how this can open our imagination while also hedging against dystopian outcomes. So, so it's called AI playbooks and we want to just create guides that can help creators grow using AI. And that is, is something that I've been thinking a lot about. And the space is changing so quickly that I'm, I'm realizing like, okay, I need to create some orienting frameworks here that can help me kind of, how do I best gesture at what the space is going to look like in six months or a year? You know, where, where are these different things moving? And then from there, I can start to act not from, you know, what's here today, but I can start thinking about what that tomorrow world looks like and start kind of building an anticipation of that. So it's a really interesting thing to think about because it's just, it's so, I mean, it feels like what we're coming into where Web3 and blockchain had a lot of hype around it and, and really failed to deliver. I think this is not the case. Like, I think this is a genuine technological revolution that will have effects similar to what we saw with you know, the the cell phone, how that changed the game in a lot of ways. Seems like that next level, and it could be even, you know, much bigger than that. So we'll see. Well, Mike, we've covered a lot of terrain today, and I've, I've loved every second of it. Is there anything that we haven't spoken about thus far today that you would like to bring into the conversation now? I think I'd like to, to you know, to anyone listening, especially those who are listening that might be having a hard time. I think it's always been useful for me to remember in the space of difficulty to, you know, the the classic phrase, this too shall pass, that, you know, our, our dark times, it's like, you know, there are weather patterns that we go through in life and these storm clouds, you know, they will eventually break and the sun, the sun will shine again. And that might be hard to hear and hard to really let in and accept, but I've never known, I've never seen a case where it, that's, that doesn't happen in my own life and and for others, it seems like there's always some kind of breakthrough that happens, you know, eventually. And so give yourself some compassion. Life is difficult. It is, this is not, this is not a cakewalk. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter, you know, if you've been born into immense amounts of wealth or you've never, you know, you never had enough, like wherever you are in whatever sort of hierarchy, you know, in society, we all, struggle and we all have difficulties. And I think if we can remember that, try to, you know, be a little bit more compassionate and caring, even to strangers that we come across in the world in our day-to-day life, we could, we could lift this world up a little bit. You know, there are a lot of people out there that feel really alone. So finding, finding ways to just do a little bit more and, and really try to love, love your corner of this earth as best you can. I think it can go a long way. So just that, that bit of encouragement. Mm. Well, I really appreciate that. It's, it's like the meta loving kindness wish. May you be happy, may you be safe, may you be free from suffering and may you live your life with ease is, mm. is kind of what I'm hearing there. And there's, yeah, there's, there are elements of Buddhism and what I'm hearing you say that life can be really, life is suffering is I think the first core tenet of Buddhism and life can be really challenging. And so I appreciate you naming that. I do have a couple more questions that I wanted to run by you. And uh, yeah, before we wrap up, what does, I, I read an article 
by you that says follow your discipline. And I'm wondering if you could speak to what that means to you. Yeah, okay. This was a few years ago. So I find that we follow your bliss can be misinterpreted to only do what feels good, you know? And I think that that is not what it what is meant by the by the sentiment. And I think that there is we we gain gifts through exertion, especially when we push push past where we we feel like we can go. And so that kind of exertion and coming up against these these barriers of of difficulty and pushing past them and and growing and getting better is an important thing. And so finding these things that do bring us you know joy and and feel like they really light us up and give us some of this this sort of spiritual electricity when we when we do them or when we we work on them, I think is very important. And when those things start to feel like they lose their luster a little bit, or they're not really giving us the charge that we've gotten from them in the past, that doesn't mean that that thing needs to be discarded. I think we've got this weird conversation and culture around, yeah, find your passion. And so people like, they try to latch onto something and say, I found it, I found it. And then they they naturally lose some enthusiasm as we tend to do, you know, it's just as you become more, you know, our sort of interest can plateau until we reach some new sort of level with something. These ebbs and flows are very common. You know, you see it in relationships a lot where people have this just goo goo gaga, you know, um, honeymoon phase when they start their relationship. And then that goes, that starts to go away because the chemical flood changes you know, when you're first getting with someone, there's this huge chemical flood that happens where it's just like, oh my gosh. And that goes away eventually because it just it just naturally does. And then people think something's wrong with the relationship, but the relationship is in transition, you know, from this passionate love to a more companionate love that is actually, you know, more is has more depth to it and more staying power. That's a bit of a straying away from the point I was making in that finding not being discouraged by that sort of dip in enthusiasm and building a practice, you know, out of things can be really useful disposition, just showing up, allowing yourself to show up. I've been doing this a lot lately with, with my magic, just trying to practice something every single day, something new. And so often I find that by doing, I don't, I might not feel the like, I just can't, I just can't wait to just practice this thing. But when I'm doing it and then I start to get the satisfaction the wheel starts to turn and then I get excited about something that I, that I've thought to try or, or do. So putting those investing, you know, putting those sort of deposits of energy in these things that we care about, even if we don't feel like the, the most zest and excitement for them that we've ever felt, I think is an important thing to do. There's this, this phrase that I, I think has, there's some, there's something to it, but also can easily be misconstrued, misconstrued. If it's not a hell yes, it's a no. You know, if if any relationship lived by that, you know, 100% wholeheartedly, it wouldn't last because every relationships go through times where you're like, man, this is a no. This is like a no right now. This is not feel good. This is hard. And so it's like, if you're trying to optimize for hell yes, everything, it's like, you need to have, there, there needs to be these like pauses, these exhales, these there's this rhythmic dancing that happens to life. It's just not permanently 
ecstasy and that's it you know it's just set it's just not how it works so i think it sets up sort of the wrong kind of expectations so there's this marriage in that phrase of of you know finding our our bliss and then being disciplined about how we approach it and and just having these practices where we can show up i think it builds a sense of trust in ourselves you know that we can invest in and do the things that we care about even when it's not easy so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I packed a lot in that that answer, but it's a good question. I'm really glad I asked because it, that feels really important in in the age of follow your passion and follow your bliss. And I, I think that like many things, there's some good elements of it and it's incomplete. And I think that following your bliss plan, it seems to encapsulate more of the totality of it where plateaus are inevitable and they're going to happen. And that's not an indicator that we need to stop, but rather that we are growing and maybe ascending to a new level that we just need to be patient for a little bit. And I found that true with my coaching practice. I found that true in my romantic relationship. And I've, I found it true on this platform here with my podcast that it's something I really love doing. And at times it's really fucking hard and and that's okay that I, sometimes I feel like I'm stuck and I don't know what direction I want to take it. And that's not an indicator that I'm on the wrong path. It's actually probably a good indicator that I'm on the right one. So, yeah. And to, to never get lost, you never, you never know the joy of being found, you know? Mm. So that the, they complement one another in these ways where we sometimes have to feel stuck and feel like things aren't really clicking and connecting to have the ecstasy of the epiphany that allows us to move on to that next step by wiping out, you know, the one side of things that would be typically classified as negative. We, we lose a lot of what makes the positive positive and the contrast, you know, is what informs why those positive experiences are so positive in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a word that you've been paying attention to the meaning closely to? And and I asked that because I, I wrote down the word, I might pres- mispronounce it. So forgive me if it's wrong, but sonder is a word I wrote down, S-O-N-D-E-R. Mm-hmm. And the way that I internalize it is that it's kind of to, when you see someone to be able to see the totality of the life experience that they are bringing into every single moment. And it invokes a lot of, what we've spoken about today, curiosity and and wonder and just understanding the full depths of it's like kind of not trusting our initial projection that we're putting onto someone Mm. and, and really dropping into, there's so much to this person that I don't know. And that's actually really beautiful. And, and I didn't know there was a word for it, but it seems like it's something that you explore. So are, are there words that are interesting to you that you'd want a presence for the listener? So many, so many. So Sonder, I think is really interesting, especially like walking through crowded places with a bunch of strangers who pass you by or when you're driving past like a a tall apartment building and you see one of the lights on and maybe you see a shadow of someone, Mm. you know, it's like these are, we don't have the cognitive capacity to, to render these strangers in their full detail. But the fact is they're living a life as rich and as complex as your own. And that is like, whoa, this is a big world. There's a lot of people. There's a lot of people out there. So it just, it kind of, it's jaw dropping to really consider and and to know that there are these depths to people, you know, 
I think allows us to really humanize strangers in, in these kinds of ways. But I think that just shows the power of, of words, right? You can Mm -hmm. find a word that is this little instrument that allows us to accentuate certain aspects of the world that we're viewing in, in these different ways. And that word is made up. It's from the dictionary of, of obscure sorrows. And it's, and some, so some people might say, well, that's not a real word. It's like all words were made up, you know, it's like, they were all made up. <laughs> we just, we use them and it's like, and then they become so common that everyone knows them. And that's what happens. So with that, with that said, other words, I mean, there's uh uh, I'm going to mispronounce it. It's a Portuguese word, saudade, and it's pronounced, it's spelled S-A-U-D-A-D-E. And this has this, like, there's this nostalgic longing to this word that it's like you of some, some place that is long, long past, or maybe never even existed that you can't reach, can't get back to. And, and there's an affection for this world or person. Um, and but also this sort of bittersweetness that you can't quite reach it and get back to it. And I think about that a lot sometimes, like when I connect with just the I, I come across like 90s nostalgia, you know, when I was a kid or something, I feel that I'm like, wow, this there's such simplicity to that world that I was living in, mostly because, you know, I was a child <laughs> and I was in that consciousness. And and these these things, these artifacts from that era remind me of that being in that sort of state of mind. And so that's something that I think about, you know, these things that are sort of out of reach, but are, but I I can reminisce upon. And yeah, there's so, there's so many flaneur is I'm probably mispronouncing that as well. I think that's a French word, but that has to do with uh, sort of aimlessly wandering, you know, around, you know, it could be a city or somewhere and you're just kind of letting you're not really like going anywhere with a particular destination in mind, but you're just sort of just ambling and letting the landscape sort of draw you in these different directions. And I think that's a really interesting practice. It's an interesting thing to to do, you know, when it's not too cold, you know, I tend to, I tend to do a lot of walking. I like walking around and I especially like walking places, you know, like un, unusual trails for myself, places I haven't been or, you know, just tr- especially like, you know, my, where I live, you know, my neck of the woods, there's so much to see, even in like places I haven't seen, you know, pockets of my neighborhood that I haven't seen. So I want to see that, you know, explore, explore these things. So those are two that s- stick out to me, but every, re- I, I write this down the rabbit hole newsletter every week. And every week I include a word in that, in that newsletter. So I, <laughs> I'm always coming upon things that I think are really useful lenses or frames. I think it's awesome. And it was one of the things that stood out about reading your different posts is that you would presence a word and, and tie it into some way that you're curious about your life or some way that you're living your life. And I, uh, yeah, I recommend folks check out the rabbit hole. So before I invite you to uh, give my listeners a place to connect with you, this question has been coming. I, I, kind of dropped it in a little while ago. I haven't asked you yet. What's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy? Whenever I, we have two dogs, two Pomskis. So I love dogs. They've always been a, a big part of my life. 
And so just like coming, coming out or like leaving the house and then coming back in and their reaction and, you know, just reaching up and, you know, wanting to get your attention. And I think that that's so, it's just, there's just so much love there, you know? So it's a pretty mundane thing. I've lost enough dogs to feel really like close to, to them and try to really be present, you know, in their short lives. So just to see their enthusiasm, you know, it's like, in my mind, I'm like, I don't know if they thought I was gone forever or what. It seems like they think that, <laughs> but just to have that experience. Also, I, I love a good cup of coffee. So that first sip of coffee, it's, uh, it's just so nice. It's just like a, such a ritual, you know, it wouldn't even need to have caffeine in it. Cause of course that mm-hmm. first sip, it's not hitting your bloodstream yet, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say I, I dislike caffeine. I'm a big fan of it, but having that first sip of coffee is something that is like a super deeply ingrained ritual. So yeah, I could go on and on about different things that I find, uh, really bring me joy. But those are two that stick out that feel pretty mundane. Yeah, but those are two really great ones. And <laughs> it's actually reminded me on days where sometimes my wife will commute to the city and I'll work from home. When she gets home, I will kind of like pretend to wag my tail and and like run up to her like I'm a dog because there is there's something really beautiful about the way a dog we too with that level of excitement every single time that you come home. And the, the novelty, it's not a dog doesn't go like, oh, you know, it's it's just been another day and same old blah, blah, blah. <laughs> a dog, every time they see you, it's like, oh, my God, Mike's, Mike's home, Mike's home. <laughs> right, right. And yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing to be in touch with and, and maybe something that I aspire to. It, clearly, if I'm greeting my wife like that, there's there's something in there that I'm touched right. by that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. It's not easy to wag your tail, especially when you don't have one. So props to you. Tough work, Mike. Yeah. Thank you very much. (laughs) So uh, before I ask my very final question, in addition to AI playbooks, which I don't know if you've actually started releasing newsletters for and for rabbit hole, which I'll link to both in the show notes, where else would you invite people to connect with you, follow you online? Find me well, go to my my personal website, mikeslavin.com. There's not a lot on there, but there's going to be more more coming soon, probably. Just sign up for, you know, put your email in the box, all those things. You can find me on Twitter where I post infrequently, mslavin. Yeah, so those are the main main places. Awesome. And AI playbooks I have started. There's been two editions so far. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure I link to all of that in the show notes. I'll link to the Alan Watts books and all the other names, Jeff Foster, Joseph Campbell, all the other people we've mentioned. And the final question that I ask in every single interview, the podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm really interested because I, I love the way that you deconstruct reality and you might kind of like take a piss at the question in and of itself. But what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Mm. Now, I think that's a really important question. You know, I'm going to, I'll answer with a new idea that struck me the other night that I haven't fully articulated yet. So maybe this is the venue to do that. And I think that to, to live a meaningful life to me means nurturing the plot, 
Mm. And I'm, I'm, I'm using the word plot there to do some heavy lifting. Uh, you, when I said it, maybe you thought like um, a movie or like a story. And that's yes. what you, so I think that's probably what most people would think. And I am using it in that way. And I think that our stories that we tell ourselves and the way that we relate to the world are super important. And so if, kind of back to the sort of embedding piece, you know, we're all embedded in this world and co-sculpting that there are these stories that are, are being told, these threads that we can pull on, these interesting ways that we can engage the the matter of our life to tell a more interesting story, you know, to, to live into a, a kind of character. And that can help us look for opportunities that might not be immediately obvious to us. There's this, I've been collecting these synonyms that I ascribe different definitions to, you know, typically someone would think of decision and choice to mean the same thing. And I, I think I got this from Forrest Landry. I may have taken liberties at, you know, my own definitions of them, but decision being something that is typically held in a binary. And so we might have all the kinds of decisions that we're making, you know, between this and that and this and that, yes or no. And it's easy to get stuck in those and sort of see the world from the, the filters of whatever those those binaries are. And a lot of them can be inherited or we're just sort of, we've got a lot of momentum of, of thinking around. And choice is kind of takes an expanded view and it asks what can be done outside of what we might've considered. It's the difference between a street lamp and a flashlight. A flashlight you can carry with you and, and really explore on a, uh, unexplored territory. So it's the sort of nurturing the plot carries some of that sentiment for me is like, what are some interesting, unusual ways I can nurture the material of my life to bring about interesting and 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 joyful or and beautiful consequences? Mm-hmm. And the the other meaning of plot that I that I'm taking there is to sort of import some natural analogy, and that is a plot of land. You know, mm-hmm. each of us in our life is are sort of given a plot of land, and what can we grow from there? And I like that because it ties into some of what we were saying before about like a real legacy, you know, real legacy being something that is not a name that is uttered, but the sort of invisible impact of a long lost love that was so palpable and so present and so impactful that it it, it ripples through generations, even though the people who are benefiting from it might not even realize it. And so that you know, nurturing that plot of land that you, that you live on and growing the yourself and the people, you know, like really having this, this natural analogy to it, the ecology of your life and supporting and finding ways to, to say and do things that can support in the, in the growth and the unfolding of the people that you care about, I think is an important disposition. So you sort of, mash those two things together from a narrative perspective and from a ecological perspective. And I think there's some, there's a lot of richness that can unfold from that. Well, it's one of my favorite answers to that question that I've gotten. I I really, (laughs) yeah. So consider this interview a win after all. I, yeah, I really, I love the way that you are kind of, you deconstruct language and, and the way that you deconstruct reality and, 
yeah, I, I experience you almost as kind of a part philosopher, part like wizard, magician. Like you're you're so many different things, and and the multitude of things it feels it feels like it gives you the vantage point to realize we're all a, a multitude of so many different things, and mm. that's a beautiful gift. And it was a really fun unpacking to explore with you, just un understanding who you are and the way that you see the world and especially when it comes to technology, the, the courage of being able to take a look at something that's rapidly evolving so much that your, your current stance or your current view might be antiquated in a pretty short amount of time. There's a way that I, I think a lot of us would be very attached. I, I know that I would too. Like I, I kind of, I fancy myself someone who's putting out a lot of evergreen stuff because I think that a lot of the kind of philosophical search for meaning questions are eternal to some extent, but to put, to plant yourself in that arena is to be willing to be wrong and to challenge your beliefs over and over and over again. And I think that that's maybe the, the thing that I learned most about you from this interview process and, and the way that you're able to accept and meet people where they are if that's not if that doesn't feel true for them is also a beautiful gift and that the wish for compassion and uh, for love and for acceptance is a, is a beautiful thing so thank you for exploring all of that and more in this forum it's been truly a, a privilege and an honor to get to know more about you and to be able to share this with my listenership yeah thank you mike this has been a lot of fun for me to just riff and, and share these things, I was really unsure of what kind of territory we, we would cover, but since our first interaction, I've been looking forward to, you know, diving in together. And yeah, I just really appreciated the, the questions that, that you had for me. And um, and yeah, I, I had a great time. So thank you, for, thank you for listening. Awesome. Yeah, and to all the listeners, thank you for listening. I echo that and I hope that you have a great rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.